0: We'll delve straight in, I think, Um, and I was wondering, Marco, if you could just tell us a little bit more about your early life and how you grew up.
1: Well, firstly, good evening, everybody. This is quite scary, (laughs) but quite exciting at the same time. Small chairs. The, um, (laughs) well, I was born in the north of England in a city called Leeds. I was born into very humble beginnings and, and... You know, it's when I think back to my time in Leeds, you know, I came from a very working class world, but a working class world that had self-esteem and they had pride, they knew their position. The front gardens were always tended. The back garden was where you grew your vegetables and you you dried your washing. And when I go down the streets of the world that I was born into, I think, It's not a world I recognize anymore, because we were brought up to better ourselves. It was as simple as that. When I was 13 years old, my father looked at me as a man, not a boy, and sent me out to work. And every morning I would wake up Monday to Saturday at 4.45. At five past five, the milkman would collect me. And we would run for the next four hours. Run, or three and a half hours. And then he would take me to school. Every day, I was late. But you know, I earned five pounds a week. And at the end of that week, my father took my money and told me it was for, he told me it was for my holidays. I never worked it out, but when I look back as a child, I think, I think he spent it down the bookies. <laughs> but that was the world that I came from. But my father, what he did do, he taught me how to work hard. He taught me how to be disciplined. He taught me how to be punctual. He taught me how to never throw in the towel. And if I threw in the towel, he taught me to pick it up. Never give in, never, ever, ever give in. And when you're young, it's very easy to give in, to walk away, it really is. I did very badly at school, really badly. I left school. I wasn't very good at spelling. Mm -hmm. I wasn't very good at reading or writing. But my father, in January 1978, he gave me some money, which was enough to take me to Harrogate on the bus, buy me a sandwich, get me a cup of tea and bring me home. He dressed me in my Sunday best. It was the most daunting task I'd ever been given. He told me to knock on the doors, the kitchen doors of the hotels and explain that on the 17th of March, I was finishing school. And I was looking for an apprenticeship. I'd be prepared to start work on Monday the 20th. So I got the 36th bus to Harrogate, not knowing where I was going. Never in my life had I strayed so far from home, unaccompanied. And there I was in my Sunday best. I got off the bus by the Senate staff in Harrogate, not knowing where I was going, not knowing that that journey was me leaving the world that I was born into and starting a new world. And so I walked down the hill, don't know why. I got to the bottom of the hill. I saw this hotel in front of me called the Hotel St. George. Victorian, quite grand, posh doorman. So I walked alongside it. The doorman looked at me. I looked at him. I was quite intimidated, scared. I walked past him, I saw this little this little road which went round to the back of the hotel. And <coughs> I walked down this road, and then I saw this door, a turquoise door. I thought that must be the kitchen door. I knocked on the door. <coughs> And the truth is, I never wanted that door to open. It opened. Trevor, the kitchen porter, opened the door to my new life. He said, what can I do for you, lad? I said, I'm here to see the chef. He assumed that I had an appointment. He walked me through the kitchen. It was in the middle of lunchtime service. They were screaming, there were shouting, chefs were running in their tall hats, pure white. And this chef looked at me. I looked at him and I said under my breath, hello. He ignored me. We came to another turquoise door. Trevor knocked on the door. The chef, co- the chef said, come in. Trevor, he said, there's a young man here to see you, chef. He said, come in. So I walked in. He said, sit down. And I sort of recognized him. I knew that type of man. He had the same facial features as my father. The publication spread wide open. On his desk was the Sporting Life. He had the stack of Willie Mill bedding slips, which he wrote his daily specials out on. He said, what can I do for you, lad? I said, my dad sent me to Harrogate to look for work, to find an apprenticeship. I leave school on the 17th of March. I'm prepared to start work on Monday the 20th. He gave me a job as an apprentice chef, living 15 pounds a week. But what was amazing about that, that that was one of the luckiest moments of my life. I was born into a council estate. Getting a job at the Hotel St. George was my passport to escape the world that I was born into, to start a new world. I went to work at the Hotel St. George. Did I learn much about food? Not really. But did I learn how to run? Did I learn how to say, yes, chef? Did I learn how to take orders? Did I push myself? Did I learn how to use a knife? Did I fear being sacked? Yes, I did. That was my greatest fear. Because if I was sacked, I lost my home. I would have to go back to Leeds tell my father I'd been sacked. I was ruled by fear. I worked so hard and I pushed myself so hard. And, you know something? The truth is, had it not been for that man, who was not a nice man, I would never have realized my dreams because he gave me the tools required. He taught me how to absorb pressure, how to push, how to pick up the towel, how to hide my tears. Because the old world of gastronomy was as scoffier's world. It was like a factory floor. They were hard men all from humble beginnings, a tough world. That first evening on the 20th of March, my head chef said to me, not my head chef, sorry, my chef de partie, which means head of a section. His name was Michael Love. He said, Marco, the first thing you've got to learn is service is service. And I said, what does that mean? He said, whatever the chef says to you whatever he screams at you, whether he swears at you, abuses you, you just say, yes, chef. And that's what I did. I just said, yes, chef. Whatever I was told to do, whatever was shouted at me, I just said, yes, chef. Anyway, I survived. But in the afternoons, the other chefs weren't interested in me. I was 16. So what I used to do was I used to go to the Hall Porter's Lodge. I used to polish the client's shoes for two hours. Have a cup of tea with Bill and Ken. And one day, I walked into the Hall Porter's Lodge. Go round the back in my split shift. On the chair where I sat was a small book. That book was about so large and so thick, and on the front of it, it said, The Egon Guide to Hotels and Restaurants in Great Britain. I started flicking through it, and what I realized was that restaurants had stars. But what was really interesting, the finest restaurant in Britain was the box tree in Ilkley in West Yorkshire. 15 miles down the road. Anyway, that evening I went back and I thought to myself, if I'm gonna be a chef, then maybe I should work in the best restaurant in Britain. The next day I thought the same. The next day I thought the same and this went on for a few months. And one day, I plucked up the courage to contact the box tree and asked if there are any vacancies. This was the second, the third moment of luck in my life. The day I applied for a job, a man in the kitchen had given his notice. So I go for an interview and like the first time, I dress up in my Sunday best. polish shoes, clean cuffs, colour and tie. Three o'clock is my appointment. Once again, I knock on a door. The door opens. I'm greeted by two men. One was called Malcolm Reed, and the other was called Colin Long. They said, "Come in." They sat me down. My interview lasted two and a half hours. What they did was, with me was, they shared with me the importance of Boxtree, how special Boxtree was. They wanted me to make the right decision. It was quite scary because this was a very special place. I came from a world which was black and white after the age of six. My world had gone back into color. So I went to work at Boxtree. What was interesting, the head chef was a man called Michael Lawson. He was the first British chef to win two stars in Michelin one of only four chefs in Britain to hold that status. The great Michel Bourdin at the Connaught, Albert Roux at Le Gavroche, Michel Roux at the Waterside Inn, and Michael Lawson at the Box Tree. He trained in the kitchens of the Queen's Hotel, where my father had done his apprenticeship many years previous. He took me under his wing. Also, there was a man called Ken Lamb, Who's elderly, but every night he would take me home and tell me stories. He would inspire me. He was like a father figure, without question, the father that I never had. Boxtree, I fell in love with, with the world of gastronomy. Every night, after service, after the clean down, you'd have to say goodnight to the bosses. Because I was the young boy in the kitchen, I was the first up. The other boys all went round to the Rose and Crown for the last pint. Because in those days, pubs closed at 10.30. So that they'd nip round for a quick pint and I'd go upstairs. The first thing Mr. Reed and Mr. Long would ask me is how did service go? I'd tell them. Then, what would happen? They would tell me stories, and this is where it all began in the Chinese room of the box tree. They would tell me stories about the great restaurants of France. La Salle, La Grande Fifo, La Tour d'Agent, Maxime's, Charles barrière Trois Gros, the list goes on. Name the chefs. And I used to absorb it like a sponge I'd never been so inspired in my life. I'd never dreamt of anything like this in my life. And with Michael, Mr. Ken Lamb, and the boss of the box tree, they made me dream. They told me stories. They shared their knowledge. They brought out the best in me. They also told me about restaurants in London, like La Fontaine Claire, with the great Pierre Kaufman, Ma Cuisine with Guillaume Yuron the Connaught with Bourdain, La Gavroche with Albert But the the restaurant they spoke about most was La Gavroche. I used to listen and absorb. And one day. I plucked up the courage to write two letters. I'd done my two and a bit years at Boxtree. I wrote two letters. One to La Gavroche, and one to a place called Chewton Glen in the New Forest on the sort of Hampshire-Dorset border, a place called New Milton. Gavroche wrote back to me in French. With an application form in French <laughs> I tried to fill it in. The truth is, I messed it up. So I screwed up and I threw it in the bin. Choosing Glenn had invited me for an interview. So I got the coach from Yorkshire very early morning down to Victoria Coach Station, and then I got a taxi. From Victoria Coach Station to Waterloo Station. And I got the train. I got there and I went for my interview with a man called Christian Delte. Christian Delte was one of the great cooks, one of the great young cooks in Britain. He trained at Trois Gros in Rouen, which had three stars in Michelin. And he trained at the Connaught with the great Michel Bourdin, which had two stars in Michelin. And this was his first head chef's position. I'd seen an article in in the box tree, in one of those sort of posh magazines, which I thought as a child called House and Garden, in the food pages. And I kind of liked his food, I liked his style. It was sort of classical with a modern touch. So I went for an interview, and I was offered a job in the pastry. The truth is, I don't like sticky fingers. I never liked sticky fingers since I was a very young boy of four. When I sat on a fence in Italy with my mother, watching them harvest figs. And this young farmer came over with a handful of figs and gave them to my mother. Have you ever seen figs when they are being picked? They bleed milk, which is really sticky. My mother broke one open, and she shared it with me. I kind of liked the taste, but I didn't like the texture. I didn't like the stickiness. So I said, I'll think about it. I got the train back to London. I arrived in London. I didn't want to go to Chewton Glen. There was something about it I didn't like. It wasn't just the pastry. And it sort of got a bit dark by now. And I wasn't used to the city life. I'd spent my life (coughs) in the woods, in the fields, along the streams and rivers of Yorkshire. I saw this Royal Mail man, and I said to him, "I said, how do I get to Victoria Coach Station, sir? Please." He said, "I'm going there," so he delivered me to Victoria Coach Station. By the time I got there, my last coach had gone, because in those days things stopped early. That was the world, and so I had to walk the streets of the night. So am at the back of Victoria Coach Station, I think to myself, if I walk up this road to the traffic lights and turn right down that road, turn right again, turn right again, turn right again, I'll just go around in a big circle. So I walk up this road, I turn right, and that road, as I know today, is called Pimlico Road. I walk down Pimlico Road, I get to the end at the crossroads. Straight on is Royal Hospital Road. To my left is Chelsea Bridge Road. I turn right up Lower Sloane Street. I walk up Lower Sloane Street, about a hundred meters. And I find myself looking through the windows of this very elegant restaurant. So I step back a bit. and I watch them serving the food. I watch them serving the desserts, the petit fours, lighting the cigars, pouring the wine. I think, wow, this is beautiful. And I look at the name above the door, and the door, above the door, it says Le Gavroche. This was the restaurant that I wrote to that sent me an application back in French. So I make that decision, that i walk the streets, and in the morning, before I get my coach back to Yorkshire, I'll knock on the back kitchen door. In the morning at eight o'clock, I knock on the back kitchen door. Baloo, the pastry chef, who does the mise en place, the mise en place means preparation in advance, opens the door and I, he tells me and explains to me that Gavroche only does dinner. But He also tells me where the the Rue head office is, down Lower Sloane Street, (coughs) Chelsea Bridge Road, Queenstown Road, At the top of Queenstown Road, turn left, about 300 metres, you'll see the rear head office on the right. But let's not forget, I've been travelling now for over 24 hours with no sleep. I'm tired, I'm hungry, I'm thirsty. But you know something? That's an irrelevance. So I try and make my way there, I get a bit lost, but by some miracle, I end up up going up this side road. And when I get to the top of it, just to my left, I see this grubby office with the letters R-O-U-X. <coughs> so I go and I knock on the door and open it at the same time because it's an office. And to my amazement, the great Albert Roux is sitting on the desk to my left. And he said, what can I do for you? And so I told him my story. I told him that I'd written. You sent an application back in French and I messed it up and I threw it in the bin. I told him that I went to Glen for an interview they'd offered me a job in the pastry. I told him that I'd missed my coach home. I told him that I'd walked the streets all night. And then he said to me, where do you work? I said the Box Street in Ilkley in West Yorkshire. And then he said to me, the greatest meal i ever had in Britain was at the Box Street in Ilkley, West Yorkshire. and On the strength of that meal, he employed me. The job was, let's set a date. You come down on the Monday, we'll find your digs for a week. You start work on the Tuesday. That was it. And that's how I ended up in London. But what's interesting, I realized years later, the translation of the word le gavroche, gavroche, means street urchin that's what I turned myself into over those 30 hours a street urchin and that was the start of my life in London I hope I'm not boring you
0: <laughs> so, so you're in London uh, you're working at an incredible uh, restaurant and then how do you go on then to earn three Michelin stars
1: well <coughs> I did my time in Gavroche And in that time, I started in 81 in Gavroche. In the January 1982 guide, Le Gavroche won three stars in Michelin, which became the first restaurant in Britain to win three stars. And to be part of that team, to be part of that world was a magical moment. I suppose it was like being nobby Styles in the 1966 World Cup final. You know, okay, I I was an apprentice, but it was amazing. The one thing I'd like to point out, I'm now 19. It's all been about luck. Finding the Egan Runny guide, getting lost, knocking on doors. It's about luck. Success is born out of luck. It's awareness of mind that takes advantage of that opportunity. You will all be confronted with opportunity you must take advantage of it. Because if you don't take advantage of your opportunity, you'll never realize your dreams. Whether you want them or not, it's an irrelevance. You don't know that until you achieve it. So then, to survive at Gavroche, because Gavroche was only in the, in, the, in the latter part of, or in that first part of um, 81, it was only open dinner. So I used to work in a restaurant with a great man called Nicola Dennis. And because Baloo, who I ended up living with, in Queenstown Road, where Nicola Dennis, who had a one-star restaurant in those days, used to work the evening for extra money with the great Nicola Dennis. And on the way home from Gavroche, I'd always walk, and I met Nico. I liked Nico, he's a good man. He was the funniest chef I ever worked with. He was kind, he was funny, he was generous. And he asked me if I'd like to come and work in the morning before I went to Gavroche. So I'd start at Gavroche at one o'clock. I'd work with Nico from 8.30 to 12.30, then go to Gavroche and then do the rest of my day at Gavroche. Because Gavroche paid me 67 pounds a week. Seven pounds of that was for my allowance for cleaning my chef's whites. So my actual wage was 60 pounds a week. Nico paid me 50 pounds a week for working the five mornings. Tuesday to Saturday. So it allowed me to live. That was the only way I could afford to stay in London because by, by doing a second job. The, the other two star chef in Britain who'd been elevated in 1981 was a man called Pierre Kaufman. Kaufman had started his training at the Gavroche He worked his way up through the ranks to become head chef of Le Gavroche and then opened up his restaurant in Chelsea in Royal Hospital Road where he had a two-star restaurant. I was told that Kaufman did not employ the English. He didn't believe they had it. So I went to see Kaufman. I never told him I was at Gavroche and I had my interview and at the end of that interview he said I've got no vacancies. I recommend that you apply to Gavroche. So I never told him I was at Gavroche. So I said to him I'll work for nothing. He said So give me a start date. So I went to and I worked there for 3 weeks for no pay. And then one night Kaufman said to me, he pulled me to one side, we should always drink tea in soup bowls. It's a French habit. He said, Mako, I'd like to put you on the wage roll. I was very close to Kaufman, and to this day, 30 years on, I'm still his friend, and my one of my sons is in the kitchen with him today. So it's quite beautiful, really, 30 years on, and Luciana's working very hard. And Kaufman's rather fond of him. Um, but Coffin's a good man. He's soft today compared to what he was. When I was a young boy, he was hard. But he had dreams of three stars in Michelin, like Albert. And he realized his dreams. His Coffin. He won his three stars. Today he has a restaurant in London, which has no stars. But you know something? It's my favorite restaurant in Britain. Do you know why? Because he cooks food you want to eat. It's an extension of him. If you ask me a simple question, what makes a great chef? I'd say that great chefs have three things in common. One, they accept and respect that Mother Nature is the true artist, (coughs) and they are the cook. Two, everything that they do becomes an extension of them as a person. And three, they give you insight into the world they were born into, the world which inspired them, and they serve it on their plates. And that's what Pierre Kaufman does. And I had that great privilege of working with him. And in many ways, he was mostly the man who inspired me and influenced me most out of all the great chefs I ever worked for. So then I did my time with Kaufman, which was tough. I remember that first day. You go through for your lunch at 11 o'clock. I walked through and there was a table with about 12 staff, all French. There was a little table to one side for me and the kitchen porter. I thought interesting. Kaufman maybe read my expression, I don't know. He said, Marco, come and sit next to me. I went and sat with him and had my lunch. But I never, ever, ever sat at that table again. All through my breaks at lunch and all through my breaks at dinner, I worked hard. Because what was important to me was to prove to Pierre that an Englishman can work as hard, if not harder than a Frenchman. And I became very close to Pierre. And then one day Nico rang me up, he said, He said, I had Raymond Blanc last night, who runs the Manoir à his Saisons. This is 1984, 85. He said he's looking for a sous chef. And I told him about you, Mark. So I went to see Raymond Blanc at the Manoir. And he gave me the job. So I went to Manoir and I did just over a year there. But to be quite honest, I've, life in the middle of the Oxfordshire countryside was quite boring for me. And I enjoyed my time there, I learned a lot there. Raymond is a very, very, very special individual. Without question, he most probably possesses the greatest palate that I've ever, uh, that I, of, a, of a man I've ever known. Genius. <coughs> I do my time and it's time to leave Manuel. And I ring up a friend of mine. (coughs) And I say, look, I'm coming back to London. I'm on my way to Paris because I haven't yet worked in France. And I want to go and work in one of the great three stars in France. So I ring him up and I say, can you put me up for a week? He said, yes. So I go over to London. He tells me the keys are in the Iron So I get the keys, I go in his house. He lives above his restaurant. There's really little furniture, it's very weird. Anyway, he comes back that afternoon and he tells me that his wife has left him and, and taken the children. He's a bit of a broken man. And I watch him drinking, and he tells me his restaurant's in trouble. He said, can you help me, Marco? So for six weeks, sorry, not six weeks, sorry. For six months, I worked for him for no pay. Every Monday night, I cook for two men. They never choose. They always tell me to cook them a dinner. Anyway. Alan's restaurant goes bust. I've now got to sort myself out. I've worked for this man for six months for no money. But he was my friend. I helped him as much as I could. And every day for six months I watched him get drunk. So I go to the West End. And I get a job in the West End. I don't tell them my history. I don't tell them where I've trained. And the restaurant's... and the the quality of restaurants I've worked in. And I get a job in 1986, sort of September time, for £400 a week cash in hand. And £400 a week in 1986 was a lot of money. Anyway, about a month later, I get a call from one of the two men that I used to cook for every Monday night in this restaurant. And they asked to see me. So I go to see them, and I don't really understand what they're saying to me, really. Basically, what they're saying is is they're offering me a head chef's job, because they bought a restaurant on the edge of Wandsworth Common, which was an old butcher's shop. And they really want me to be the head chef. But I get all confused. And I said, look, I don't have the money. And they said, Marco, because they're in a real situation because they've spent 350000 on this restaurant. So they said, Marco, we will PG, personally guarantee, your loan with the bank. So in 1986, latter part of 86, I get a loan from the Yorkshire Bank for £67,000. I've never seen £67,000. And they PG'd it. And I get a job on 20 grand a year gross. That restaurant became Harvey's. We opened. So again, it's luck, by default, by me not understanding. Everything through my career has been luck. It's been nothing was, there was no strategy, there was no plan, there was no nothing. Because had I not helped my friend out for six months, I would never have met those two men. I would never have got that opportunity. So it's about opportunity, it's about taking advantage and seeing it when it arrives. So we opened in January the 15th, 1987. And Mission Guide comes out in January, about the third week of January, 24th, 25th, 23rd, 26th. <coughs> and so we weren't in that guide In the January 1988 guide, Harveys was awarded one star in Michelin. In those days, there was me and two in the kitchen and two out front. So we get one star with two black knives and forks. I always believed in one thing when I was in the kitchen, honesty with yourself is it within me i said to myself to win two stars in michelin do i have what it takes i said to myself yes so i started pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing because it's about self belief at whatever cost in january 1990 we won our second star in michelin with three knives and forks so the status in the michelin 1990, Gavroche, three stars, Waterside, three stars, Toncle, Memoire d'Un Saison, Chenico, which was Nico I spoke about, Boxtree and myself, all on two stars. I joined that top echelon. <coughs> I've got to tell you one thing. By March 80. 87, we were on the verge of going bust. Now let's go back to 1978 when I polished shoes. I found that little book. The name on it was The Egan Ronny Guide. Egon Ronnie walked into my restaurant in 1987, in March 87. Nicola Dennis had told him to go and visit me. He had his dinner. He asked to see me. My name then was Marco White. I never used my second name. Because in the 60s, having a name like Marco was bad enough. Forget the name Pierre. <laughs> so, Nico, not Nico, Egon was fascinated about my name, Marco. I told him my mother was Italian. And I told him that my next name, my second name, was Pierre. So Egan now does a whole page in the Sunday Times about this chef with long hair in Wandsworth with three names, Marco Pierre White, French, Italian and English. And that's how I became Marco Pierre White. I never used it. It was Egan who gave me my name. Egan saved that business. We were full to the rafters. In 1990, I said to myself, is it possible to win three stars? In those days, impossible, a little, a little hole in the wall, impossible. So I got to know a man called Michael Kane. I was in a restaurant with him. One of Michael's friends was a man called Rocco Forte. How I got to know a man called Michael Kane was through one of my best friends a man called Stephen Saltzman whose father was Harry who bought the rights to the Bond movies and he was very close to Michael and Shakira and he sort of fabricated because that was Stephen he fabricated he said I went to look at a a restaurant in Chelsea Harbour Stephen tells Michael Caine that I'm opening a restaurant in Chelsea Harbour so Michael Caine says I want in. (coughs) The long and short of it is I ended up opening a restaurant with Michael Caine. One of Michael's friends was a man called Rocco Forte, whose family had 40 hotels. In those days, the world's largest hotel group. Rocco had a, a lease, the old grill room in the Hyde Park Hotel. He said to Michael Kane, would Marco like a lease there? So I took on the lease and we transferred over in September the 1st, 1993. We had one month to get back to our standards because Michelin goes to print in October. They inspected us three times in 1993, September, and we transferred the stars over. In January 94, we got our two stars with four black knives and forks. I said to myself, is it within us, me and my team, to win three stars, and I believed it was. So we pushed through the year of 94, and in 1995, January, we won our three stars in Mishlam, me and the team, with four black knives and forks. We realised our dream. And We were the first English kitchen, or British kitchen, to ever win three stars in Michelin. I was one small link within that chain. And that's what you have to remember in life. It's others who make, who realise your dreams. It's not you. You're just the Pied Piper. They make your dream, because if they're not prepared to follow you, six days a week, 18 hours a day, it'll never come true. And so we won our three stars, and when the dust had settled, my head chef, Robert Reed, said to me, said, where do we go from here, marking? And I said to him, when I was a young boy, Mr. Reed used to tell me about a restaurant in Paris called La Serre, which was the ultimate, because it had three stars in Michelin and five red knives and forks. I said, we've got three stars with four black knives and forks. Let's go for five red knives and forks. For the next three years, we pushed and we pushed and we pushed and we did everything. In January 98, we won our three stars with five red knives and forks. I'd realized my dream all those years later. And that dream I had when I was 17 years old. I was now 30 seven years old. So for 20 years, I'd worked to realise my dream. Things don't happen overnight. You have to make the emotional and the personal investment to make your dreams come true. And the truth is, winning three stars has got to be without question the most exciting journey of any chef's life. Retaining them is the most boring job in the world. You become this very well-oiled machine. It's no longer personal, it's mechanical, because you're doing 100 covers, 120 covers every night at that three-star level. And by the time we'd finished, we had 30-plus in the kitchen. We had 30-plus in the restaurant. In total, we had 75, 80 staff for those 100 covers. It's just a well-oiled machine. It's like a Rolls-Royce. It's boring. And so then, I was no longer happy. I'd realized my dream, and the truth is, I'd worked hard for 22 years for something that I never wanted. And so I'm sitting there, and I think to myself, what do I do? When I won my three stars, I'd walked the head inspector of Michelin, to the to his car I shook his hands and what he said to me was Marco never forget what made you great what he was saying to me was stay behind your stove (laughs) I've always respected that and so I thought I sat down and I thought to myself what are my options I had three options Option one, continue working six days a week, 80, 90 hours a week. You leave home in the morning and your children are sleeping. You go home at night and your children are sleeping. You're exhausted on a Sunday, but you retain your status, your income, your position within the industry. That's option one. Option two, live a lie. Pretend I'm behind the stove. Pretend I still cook, continue to charge high prices, and question my integrity and everything that I ever worked for. Option three, pluck up the courage to take your apron off, hang it up, give Michelin back their stars. Accept tomorrow that you're unemployed, you have no status within our industry. They were my three options. One day I'm salmon fishing, one Sunday I'm fishing on the test of salmon. I caught a salmon. I released it. And every time I caught a salmon, I rested the pool. I sat on the bench and I lit a fag. And this little thought came into my mind. Marco, you're being judged by people who have less knowledge than you. So the truth is, what's it all worth? Not much. But what was important, I had to win those three stars to take myself to the next level to start to understand what I really want out of life. And that's what I'm doing today. 15, 16 years after retirement, I now know what I want. But I was lost for a very long time. And what I did was, when I retired from cooking, I went to the rivers, I went to the fields, I went back to the woods, I fished, I went shooting, I went deer stalking. I did all the things I did as a child after my mother had died because that's where I felt safe but today I now know what I want and every day I spend time making it and making it and making it and all I can say is thank you for your time I hope I haven't bored you if anyone's got a question I'll happily answer it but thank you for your patience have you got any more questions
0: no I think if we just move straight over to audience questions so if anyone does have a question please raise your hand Um, so we'll start off by the question just there Miguel. Uh, yeah. Hi, Marco. Um, what I wanted, uh, first of all, thank you very much for sharing your experiences with us. Um, what I wanted to ask you is in shows like MasterChef Australia, your main advice to, in cooking is to keep things simple. And what I was wondering is how do you keep things simple and yet s- are still able to create amazing dishes?
1: It's very easy to overwork something. It doesn't matter what world we're in. We overwork them, we overthink them. The secret is, is having confidence in what you do. And Within my world, it's about respecting that Mother Nature is the artist, I'm just the <coughs> cook. Allow her to present herself. Why do we want to take something and turn it into something it's not? You see people take small little breasts of pigeon, for example, and they carve it and fan it. Once you do that, what do you do? One, you lose it, when you change the shape, it no longer looks like a pigeon breast. Secondly, you have loss of heat. You have loss of juice. You've turned it into something that's not. And the easiest way for you to understand what I'm saying is, do you like espresso? It's delicious when it's hot, isn't it? But when it's cold, it's dead, isn't it? And it's the same with food. Serve your food hot, serve it quick, and keep it simple. Allow Mother Nature to be the true artist. Allow her to do the work. You're just the cook. And when you accept that in life, then life changes. Because like artists, chefs are not too dissimilar. When they're young, they tend to overwork it. Because they've been given all this information, all this knowledge, all this skill, and they feel they have to use it. But if you look at the great chefs, the great artists, they make it look so simple, don't they? They just allow it to be simple. So whatever you want to do in your life, don't overwork it, don't overthink it. And you'll realise your dream. Trust me. Thank you.
0: Thank you for your question. Uh, next, we'll go to the back to the question on the left hand side. Yep, you turning around. <laughs> um, really inspiring story there. Um, I just wanted to ask if you feel like you're talking about keeping things pure and things. Do you think there should be more of a an emphasis on how um, chefs like source their ingredients and like recycling of like food waste and everything? Should we like try and?
1: Yes, I do actually. I think I, 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 one of my favourite pastimes in the kitchen was always looking in the bin. It's amazing what you find in there if you look. There's no reason for food to end up in the bin. There's always a use. Um, what was the first part of your question again? I'm just talking about that. Just
0: about like sustainable sourcing and things. And like. I think
1: what's important about food <coughs> is the problems of food. It's really important. Um, but having said all that, I have no problem with modern day farming methods. Yeah. And I'll tell you why. Because if it wasn't for modern day farming methods, a lot of people would not be able to afford a roast chicken on a Sunday, a roast turkey at Christmas. If you imagine if all eggs were free range or organic, how much would bread, biscuits, pasta cost? So we, ha- we can't be blinkered. Just because we sit in privileged positions, we have to accept an, that a lot of people aren't in our privileged position. It's as simple as that. Thank you. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you for your question. Next, we'll go to uh, the member in the third row. Hi, I was just wondering, like, what's the best meal you've ever had not cooked by yourself? What's your name? Lizzie.
1: Hello, Lizzie. Thank you. Um, (laughs) So, actually, what's important for me? So, actually, what's important for me when it comes to eating is the people I sit with. It's all about the moment. I've eaten lots of great food in my life. And you know something? If I'm going to be brutally honest, when I go home, I think my favourite supper is a ham sandwich. With Piccalilli and a cup of tea. I'm that simple. But when it comes to having dinner, it's about sitting with people I love and people I enjoy the company of. And the most important aspect of any restaurant is the environment we sit in, not what's on the plate. Because if you don't feel comfortable within the environment you're sitting in, you'll never enjoy what's on the plate. Number two is service, number three is food. Great ambiance, great service. They look after you. They serve you with a smile. Then you can start to enjoy your food. Sometimes you go to restaurants and they're so... You're so on the edge of your chair. It's so bright and you think, I'm not really enjoying this. It's about how good the food is. That's what's important. It's about the moment. Food's secondary. Let's not place too much importance on food. Let's place it on the environment and the company you sit in and the service with a smile. Because if you get service with a smile and there's a problem, you don't complain, do you? <laughs> But when he's a little arrogant waiter, yes, you're not too happy, are you? I hope I answered your question, Lizzie.
0: Thank you very much. Uh, next we'll go to the question right at the back over there.
1: Hi. Um, you said that what your dream was um, to get the three Michelin stars. Um, and then you say once you got it, then you felt it was a bit boring. Um, my dream is to have a restaurant. Would you say that when I get my restaurant, Uh, it might be boring to maintain the reputation. Um, Where have you gone? You've disappeared. Yeah, I'll stay standing, that's all right. Firstly, what's your name? Simon. Hello, Simon. Um, When you say you want a restaurant, do you want Michelin Stars? No. I just want a restaurant which serves great food? It becomes a way of life. It becomes an extension of you. It's where you and your family are brought up. Like I'm building sort of a micro farm at this moment in time. I've got lots of pigs and I've got lambs coming. In. I've got my geese and I've got my turkeys and my chickens. It's about a way of life for me. When you go down the road of Michelin styles, it's not a way of life. You're on that treadmill. You're delivering to Michelin every day. You're delivering to customers every day. Because remember, when I cooked, when I retired, my average bill was £300 a head. And that was 1999, the 23rd of December. Can you imagine the pressure? that you're on to deliver standards. But if you want to make it a love affair, like what I'm doing now, all these years later, then you'll have a happy life. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you for your question. We've got time for just a couple more. So uh, we'll next go to the member just here at the front. Yeah. Hello, Marco. Hello, um, sir. From a chef's point of view, the in- industry is very short on chefs. Do you recommend for people as of mature age to try cooking?
1: What's your name, sir? Ricky. Hello, Ricky. Are you thinking of being a chef?
0: I'm sort of training already, sort of part-time.
1: What I would advise you is to make sure you put your career into the right hands because they will guide you and protect you and teach you. I don't think you're ever too young because it's within all of us to cook and it's within all of us to cook well and you know sometimes in life it's a bit of an advantage starting later because you've made that decision when you're young and you're 16 you get into the trade for whatever reason you may have been placed there and you throw in the towel you're obviously taking it very serious and you think actually for the rest of my life i'm considering being a chef and i think that's fabulous you know something? If cooking gives you pleasure, if the buzz of the service gives you pleasure, then throw in the towel elsewhere and go and be a chef. That's what I would say. Good luck, Ricky.
0: <laughs> uh, so then we'll finish with uh, just the member there. Yep. Hello, I just want to say thank you so much. I always wanted to be a chef um, and you're one of my biggest um, fans, Marco. Um, I wanted to ask you... <laughs> <laughs> I
1: don't know what. I don't know why they're laughing. I'm laughing at them, not you. I'm taking you very serious.
0: No. Sorry. What's your <laughs> name?
1: That's
0: what I meant anyway. What did you mean? My name's James. And my Hello, question James. was, when you're pushing for a Michelin star, how do you go about um, creating a new dish? How do you judge what you're doing and know that it's pushing into new grounds?
1: Well, firstly, I'm a classicist. I trained in the world of grand cuisine. I saw the golden age of gastronomy. I saw the, uh, I started in Escoffy's world, I saw the modern world with La Cuisine Nouvelle, and then I saw a world which was an extension of both of those cuisines, which was without question the most magical food on earth. It really was, because what they did was they made food that you wanted to eat, not just look at. The world we live in today, you go to a restaurant, you get 12 courses, 16 courses, little knickknacks. You go into a canopy party, I don't want a canopy party, I want to get stuck in and have a glass of wine. The, um, so I don't believe, I believe that we live in a world of refinement, not invention. I don't think you can reinvent, you can refine cuisine. But let's not forget, you can refine something too much. You make a souffle too light, it'll collapse. You make a mousseline of fish too light, it'll collapse. You make a sauce too light, it's like dishwater. You've got to find that balance. That, and that's called perfection. And you know something? If you cook the best fish and chips in England, you'll become famous. If you make the best bacon and eggs in the morning with beautiful organic eggs and beautiful bacon, you'll become famous. If you want to win a mission star in your restaurant, then buy beautiful produce and keep it simple. And cook food that you want to eat, not what you think they might want to eat, because it's gotta be an extension of you as a man because if, you don't, if it doesn't become an extension of you, then you'll never be happy cooking. And only cook food that you want to eat. And allow Mother Nature to be the star. And take your inspiration from your early beginnings. And trust me, you might win two or three stars. Thank you. Thank you.